this chapter of Ruth. Okay, Ruth chapter 1 and starting at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the lands, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were of Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they'd lived there about ten years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husbands. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband's. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons. Would you wait? Until they grew up, would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your gods, my gods. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabatice, her daughter-in-law, uh, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So. Well, we're looking at uh, the story of Ruth, and um, just to put it into context, firstly, uh, Ruth is a story 
before the time of Jesus. So it's going back into the Old Testament, the, uh, the history of God's people, and we're seeing God's dealing in kindness, in bringing um, love into a family, bringing restoration into a family. And really this afternoon, I, I guess it's setting the scene. And, and looking through this uh, initial opening chapter of Ruth, opens for us the scene, if you like. The author is, is preparing us, creating the context in which we're able to see God intervening and God helping. At the same time, one of the ways in which we are helped in our understanding of the Bible is seeing that God speaks, yes, by, by us seeing his intervention in the lives of individual people, but he also speaks to us, through, particularly through the Old Testament, as we see that the way that the story is constructed, that the way the events unfold, they are also pointing us towards a greater picture, a greater message, and a greater understanding for us of God. That is how we are to understand our Bibles. That's how God speaks to us. There are, if you like, levels. There is the, the simple story of what's going on. There is a deeper spiritual perspective on what is going on. And then there is the overriding, this, this uh, golden thread that we see running through the Bible that right the way through is preparing us and pointing to Jesus. Uh, and if we lose sight of that, if we lose sight of the fact that Jesus is at the center of the whole of the message of the Bible, quite honestly, we just end up reverting back to the idea that this is just a nice story. <laughs> and I guess if we're thinking that this is just a nice story and we're just unfolding a wonderful picture uh, of that's worth listening to, well, quite honestly, I would suggest there are much uh, more interesting things to do on a Sunday afternoon. I would suggest that to you. However, if this is preparing us for the golden thread of Jesus and his dealing with us in this world, then it is way more important than just a simple story. So let's have a look. Let's create for ourselves a foundation, a preparation for what's going on. Let's see what is going on in this uh, story of Ruth. Well, actually, the story of Ruth begins, if we can just flick to the, the opening verses, we see that the story of Ruth actually begins not with the story of Ruth herself, but with the story of her mother and father-in-law. We see here that there are there are a, a man called Elimelech and his wife, Naomi. And at the same time, we get a picture of what's going on for them in their individual situation. We find that they find themselves in a situation of famine. There is famine in the land. Just, just as I was reading that and as I was thinking about it, something struck me. And I don't know whether it's getting old or whatever it might be, but it just made me think a little bit about um, about the provision that we have, about the food that we have day by day. We, we can 
in our country, in our culture, we find it almost impossible to relate to the idea that's going on here. We have so much, don't we? In fact, as I think back and remember, um, you know, this sounds like when I were a lad, I were living in a cardboard box kind of thing. It wasn't that bad. But I look back and I think what life was like when I was younger. And, and really, really, it, it was, life was just a little bit different. There wasn't the massive range uh, of products that were on the shelves. There just wasn't, and I guess I'm going to be really probably provocative and rude now, and some of you will remember when it was, when it was, um, everything was fresh, and you know, hey, that's a can. So, no, it wasn't that bad, but you know what I mean. There was a time when, you know, we, ha- we live in a day now, don't we, of incredible provision, and that means that we very often find it hard to relate to this kind of story and see the devastating impact that means that a family, here we have Elimelech and Naomi, and uh, their two sons, Marlon and Killian, who leave Bethlehem to travel 50 miles. It's not far, that, is it? 50 miles is not far. Yet they travel 50 miles to Moab because that's where food is. That's incredible, isn't it? 50 miles is halfway along the M62 between here and Liverpool. You can do it in 45 minutes. Uh, and 40-foot articulators, artic- articulated lorries laden with food go backwards and forwards. And yet for this family, the impact of the situation meant that life and death, as they perceived it, as they saw it, rested on whether they travelled 50 miles from Bethlehem uh, to be in a place where they saw that there was food. But there is another perspective that is going on. And this is where we see that ongoing thread of God's hand. We actually have portrayed for us, and for the first uh, hearers of this story, they would, fi- they would find something shouting out to them. Here we have uh, one of the uh, families of God's people deciding, uh, a husband deciding, that he's going to leave and uproot his family and take them out of the place of bread, isn't that funny, Bethlehem, the place of bread, take them outside of God's provision, outside of God's land, uh, and to go and to travel to Moab. One of the things that we see time and time again is that continuous portrayal of the impact of stepping outside of God's provision. Here we have a family who feel as if they're threatened and leave the place of bread, leave the place of provision, God's provision, to go to a distant land and find provision elsewhere. How does it actually work out for this family? Well, there's all sorts of funny things going on. Uh, he, He calls his two sons Marlon and Killian. And Marlon and Killian actually mean... Uh, dying and sickness. (laughs) Wow. That's great, that, isn't it? Thanks very much for that name, Dad. Really appreciate it. Going to spend my life uh, being called sickness or spend my life being called dying. And yet, remarkably, we find that in the greater picture of God, he is preparing for a story which unfolds before our eyes as uh, this family travels to Moab and leaves God's 
provision. Guys, we carry great spiritual responsibility to step outside of God's provision, spiritually speaking, can have profound consequences. And very often we decide, don't we? And I guess that I know my heart and therefore I'm suggesting that I've got a reasonable insight into all of our hearts. We very often, all of us, don't we? We step outside of God's provision, spiritually speaking, God's place of feeding, because we think we can get fed better somewhere else. (laughs) And actually what happens when we step outside of the place where we spiritually feel as if we can get fed somewhere else, I can find better satisfaction there, and this Christian life isn't that great, and it's hard, and, and, you know, can God really be providing for me when it's this bad? I'm going to step outside of that. It's going to be much better if I take the events of life into my own hands and work it out for myself. And yet when we, fight, when we do that, we have so often, so often find ourselves not in a place of plenty, but a place of barrenness and a place of death. And that's precisely what we see here. Portrayed out, not in spiritual terms, not in spiritual life terms, but this story played out. In real life, real events. And that's one of, the, one of those extra strands, those extra layers that we see opening up before us. How God uses the events of this family to, to create for us a reminder that we see stepping outside of God's provision can have devastating effects. They travel away and uh, the husband died. And then the two sons die. We see that in verse 3. They'd married, uh, sorry, we see that the husband died in verse 3. And the two sons uh, married two women of the land. And they'd been there for about 10 years. How long they'd been married, who knows, eight, nine years, however long it might be. Uh, And then the two sons die as well. I I guess that we might have foreseen that, given the names that they'd been given. But they It follows through. Uh, And the story unfolds before our eyes. They've stepped out of God's provision. I want to ask the question here. Who's in control? Who is in control? Elimelech thought he was in control. Elimelech thought that he was going to take the necessary steps to secure the future outside of God's provision. And the outcome was not success, the outcome was hardship. Who is in control? And ultimately, who is going to be in control of the whole of this story? If that sounds like bad news and devastating news, stick with it. Stick with the story and see how it unfolds and see how in spite of the desire to step outside of God's provision, there is actually a wonderful, ongoing provision of God in a deeper, greater way. But it does raise the question, what about today? Who's in control of life today? I watched um, a a news report a few days ago. His, His name was Kiki, and he was five years old. You might have seen it. I think it was after, over after um, sorry, he was, he was eight years old. After five days, 
being buried in the rubble, uh, he was found alive. It was an incredible story. It, he, was, he was pulled out of the rubble and, and his rescuers lifted him up, uh, held him in their arms. And this little lad who, who looked around at everybody's scene, he just went like this. It was fantastic where he said, I'm free, I'm alive. I mean, what an experience that must have been. And one of the, I think it was BBC News reporters, a few days later went back to his home where he was living, well, it was a, you know, he was living in some sort of tent kind of structure with his, his father who had, who had survived, uh, without food, without real provision. And uh, the news reporter asked through an interpreter, how did you survive? And this little boy, eight years old, says this, God helped me. That was his answer. God helped me. And it th I thought to myself, on national news, probably international news, that message comes back, God helped me. And I guess that most of us as well, who are kind of hard-bitten, Western-influenced people, hear that with a degree of cynicism, don't we? Who helped me? God helped you? Oh, come on. You know, this is real life. Uh, don't, don't start introducing that hocus-pocus stuff about God. You know, actually, how you survived was because you were whatever it was, whatever the uh, human interpretation is. And then it reminded me that there is a sense in which God will use the most simple the most unexpected of voices to speak to this world and yet we don't listen. Here's this little boy who is saved. God helped me. Broadcast across the nations and our cynical ears can't hear that ultimately for all the human explanation of how it was that he was saved, I don't know, maybe there was a dripping tap that kept him semi-hydrated. I don't know, whatever it was. The answer is, God helped me. That's true. There's a verse in Joel that says, There will come a time when I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. What God is saying there is be prepared because I will start to speak, I will speak words into this world from the most unexpected of sources. We're way too clever for that, aren't we? Way too sophisticated, way too developed to think that God might be involved in each of these situations. It might be that God intervened in that situation, that God was there. Yet what we see here is a situation where God didn't intervene in that particular way. Ten years, and then left with no husband, no sons, no grandsons. And in that ancient world, this is an absolute tragedy. This is, uh, this is life and death as far as Naomi is now concerned. She is facing death 
There is no provision now for her. Uh, we, we look at that, and, and yes, to, on one, uh, to, from one perspective, we see the sad loss of family. On another perspective, there is something deeper that the first hearers would have said. She's had it now. Who's going to look after her? She's now going to, be, um, she's going to be exposed to no food, no provision, nobody to care for her, for her in her old age. There is no state social system to pr- protect and care for her. She's had it. She is a goner. No security for Naomi. That raises all sorts of questions, doesn't it? Why, why is it that God might put us in certain situations? Why is it that God intervenes here and doesn't intervene there? How can we answer those kind of questions? Why is it that God is willing to deal in one situation and yet in some way doesn't deal in another situation? Is God some sort of puppet master that just plays games with our lives? As I heard on national TV in the past week, On Coronation Street. How about that? Never expected that. Uh, Kevin Webster, whose daughter Sophie in the story as it's unfolded, has uh, apparently become a believer. She's she's started to trust in God. And uh, her mum, whatever her name is, there you go, that's just to say that I don't actually follow it in depth. Um, Whatever her name is, has had um, breast cancer. She's just been given the all clear. And Sophie tells her dad, uh, we pray tonight to thank God that mum's okay. Explosion. Why is it that God would even put us through that? Is he some kind of God that gets kicks out of playing with our lives? If he could heal her in the first place, why didn't he even stop it in the... Right at the very beginning. Why did we have to go through this? This story starts to raise those kind of questions. It starts to force us to ask, what is it that's going on in this life? Why is it that these situations do unfold? And is God involved in this? Is it possible that God is continually intervening in my life? Well, we see in verse 6 the beginning of God's provision. If we can just flick over to that in verse 6, we see when she heard in Moab, look at the way she, look at the wording, look at the way it's described. She heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. There's the beginning of hope in this story. And as far as Naomi is concerned, somebody, or as far as the writer is concerned, and we would suggest that Naomi shares this view because she acts on it, she sees that the fact that there is now food being provided back home, she sees that as the provision of God. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that remarkable? Here's a woman who has lost her husband, who has lost her two sons, and is in a strange land, having tried to escape from famine, and yet she is still able to see that food back home is a provision of God. It's remarkable, isn't it? Doesn't that turn upside down the questions that we've just been asking? 
How can God even care? How can God intervene? How can God help? Why didn't he stop this in the first place rather than getting to this point? Naomi is able to say, in spite of that, and in spite of those two events, and in spite of that event beforehand when I lost my husband, I can still see that food back home is a provision of God. That's faith. That is not blind faith, as we'll see the story unfolding. It's not blind faith, but it is faith. It is a confidence. It is a hope that in spite of all of these things going on, there is something bigger, there is a greater security, which is in the provision of God. Let me turn it around another way and say, okay, let's imagine that God isn't continually intervening. Let's imagine that there is a famine. Let's imagine that uh, husband dies. Let's imagine that two sons die. Let's imagine that there are no grandchildren to provide security into the future. And then there's no God without any hope of intervening as we see here. Imagine that there is no possibility that God might intervene. Then we are without hope. And that's really what this Uh, understanding of Naomi is prodding us to consider that in spite of this and in spite of these disasters there is hope now there is hope for Naomi she decides that she's going to uh, travel back home uh, to her homeland and she decides to tell to her two daughters-in-law that she's going to leave and tells them that they should uh, stay here Uh, she heard in Moab and she, uh, that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. But as it progresses, Naomi just thinks, well, you stay here. Verse 11 through to 13, we see Naomi turning to the girls and saying, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? How can you get security by coming with me, by coming back to uh, Bethlehem with me? How can you get security? I mean, let's face it. Let's look at some realities, she says. Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Because after all, in this culture, in this uh, kind of world that we live in, that's the only hope for you if I have more sons. You're in the same position as me. At least here you stand a chance. I mean, let's face it, she's thinking. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, she's presumably thinking there's not much chance of me having any children now. But even if I did, like that, imagine, as she's telling me, just imagine, let's paint a picture, girls. Let's imagine that some suitor just sweeps in now and he's like the dream ticket, you know. And uh, we get married tonight, and and I have children straight away, and they're boys, you know, all of these imponderables and impossibilities in human terms. And then she comes with the killer point. You're going to hang around for them? You're going to wait until they grow up so that they'll be uh, your husbands? She's kind of, she's wanting to portray it to the girls in terms of, look, your security is going to be greater here. So don't, don't rely on me. Don't look for your security with me. You stay here. I'm going to go back. I'm going to place my hands in my God. And there's lots of tears. She's obviously, um, she's not the stereotypical mother-in-law. 
there is, uh, there's lots of tears as the girls decide that this uh, isn't going to work out and Orpah in tears separates from Naomi. There's a lovely picture in one sense, isn't there, of, a, of the love that goes on there. But for Ruth, there's something else. For Ruth, this is one of those absolute defining moments in life. We all have them. At some point, we are faced with that crunch decision. One of those crunch times, crunch moments. How are you going to respond to this? As Naomi heads off to Bethlehem, Ruth What are you going to do? Crunch time. This decision is going to shape her whole life. And more than that, it's going to be the interweaving of God's wondrous provision throughout history. And she turns and she says to her mother-in-law, verse 16, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Don't urge me. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. How many years married? I don't know. Eight, nine. But in that time, the God of Naomi has had an impact on Ruth. I mean, in the ancient world, Naomi was somebody to steer clear from. You know, don't go down that line because she's unlucky, one perspective, or her gods aren't really with her. Don't hold any security in her. And yet for Naomi, she sees... Sorry, for Ruth, she sees in Naomi, I, I don't just want you. I want your God as well. Don't, please, don't drive me away. Because you're not just driving me away from you, you're driving me away from God as well. Don't separate me. Don't urge me to leave. This is crisis point, Naomi. Don't push me away. Because this is it. This is the decisive moment in my life. This is the point at which I know I need to be with you because it's not just about being with you. It's about being accepted as part of the family of God that I know that you serve, that I believe now, in spite of everything that's gone on, I still trust that God. This is crisis moment for Ruth. And she was prepared to fight for the right to be part of that family of God. And how many of you thought I was going to say to party? I didn't. She was going to fight for the right to be part of that family. Don't turn me away. Don't reject me. This is not just about you and me. This is about your God and my God. This This is faith in action. This is the point at which She turns over the kind of expectations. I still trust in your God. You know, Kevin Webster, God's been good 
God has intervened. Here's your crisis moment. Here's the point at which you will decide in the face of somebody close to you whose life appears to be in the hand of God. Where are you going to turn? Here's the moment. Here is the decisive moment. I guess that for some of you, you will have been over these, maybe for many years, maybe for just a short time, you will have been seeing the impact of God dealing with somebody very close to you, changing their life, and it's kind of right in your face. And you're going to be faced, you're going to be faced at some point. What am I going to do with this? How am I going to respond to this clear evidence of God dealing with this person who is close to me? Am I going to submit to that God who they have submitted to? Am I going to say what Ruth says here? May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. May the Lord, that one who is now ruling my life as well, the one who I have given myself to you in the same way as I have given myself to you, Naomi. He's Lord of my life as well. He is. You might have found that that God has been introduced to you. Maybe for years. You've known it. You've seen the impact. You've seen God's hand dealing in people's lives. You've seen tragedies. Yeah, maybe. And yet you've seen somebody responding in a way which is different somehow. I think that's what's gone on here for Naomi and for Ruth. Ruth has observed this and she's seen Naomi lose uh, Elimelech. She's seen her lose Marlon and Killian. And yet somehow she says, still trust in that God. Why is that? Jesus said it. And that's why this always points to Jesus somehow. Somehow Jesus directs us to this thought, or rather somehow this directs us to the thoughts of Jesus. He says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And that's what Ruth got. That's what Ruth clicked into. In the face of all of this, she made this startling discovery For all that's going on, there is peace with this God who is Lord of my life. There is resolution, there is answer, there is more, there is hope. Don't don't separate me from that hope, because if I'm separated from that hope, I have got nothing. Jesus said, my burden is light. In the face of what Naomi's gone through? Is that true? Is that possible? Well, actually, we see unfolded over these next uh, weeks. God's provision is greater than we could have ever dreamt of. More than we could ever imagine. And that's what we find here in this story. And that's what many of us have discovered. In the face of hardship, difficulty, separation, death, all of those tragedies in life. 
There's got to be something deeper. There's got to be something more. Doesn't mean that it takes it away. Doesn't mean that it's all easy. Ruth says, Naomi says that. She says, look, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Because God has dealt bitterly with me. But I've not given up my hope in him. I've not given up my trust in him, even though this is hard and this is bitter. I know that he still is, is there for me. It's not that easy. It doesn't mean that all the, all the things get, kind of get turned upside down and everything works out fine and okay. Let me just say this. Some people portray that coming to faith in Jesus Christ means that everything somehow spins around and it's all going to be great and you're going to be prosperous and you're not going to get sick and you're going to have buckets full of money rolling in through the front door. That is a lie. And it's also a shallow lie. Because if security in life is bound by health, which doesn't last ultimately anyway, and wealth, which doesn't last ultimately anyway, that's a pretty shallow hope. There's got to be more. That's what Naomi knew. And that's what Ruth absolutely thought for the right to. She said, don't separate me. Because I'm going to follow your God. Your God is my God. 